Hello, and thank you for tuning into Bookworm. My name is Brooke Minner. I'm the director at the Brooksville Free Public Library. I'm very happy to host this monthly show on WERU. My guest this month is Jerry Boyle. He's got a new book out called Random Act. It's part of the Jack McMurrow Mystery Series. Jerry, thanks so much for coming up. Thank you very much for having me. I'm so glad to have you. I really enjoyed the book, and I'm looking forward to talking with you about it. Um, I think if it's okay with you, we'll start with a reading, and we can kind of uh, you can set that up for people if you'd like. Sure. Uh, this is the beginning of Random Act. I don't usually read too deeply into the books because I either uh, give something away and people have no reason to buy it after that, or uh, it doesn't make sense. So I'll just give a little bit of context to this. Uh, McMorrow, uh, who's a freelance reporter, has headed to the local big box uh, store, and he's on a mission uh, that has nothing to do with crime. He's there to buy a new toilet. And so he uh, gets there bright and early because he has a long day ahead of him and pulls into the parking lot. So we will begin right with that. The parking lot was nearly empty at 7 a.m., a few retired guys looking to get out of the house. A couple of them had women along, and I thought of Lewis. Would Marta go everywhere with him? That's his friend who has a new girlfriend. Would he ride in the passenger seat of her Audi? How long had she rented it for? How confident had she been that she'd be able to hook right back up with an old boyfriend after a dozen years? Very, I thought. I caught myself. But what if he was just a port in the storm? What if she'd hooked him again, rekindled his feelings for her, and when she'd laid low long enough, she'd be gone? He'd wake up to an empty bed. Or was I just jealous of this woman muscling in on our territory? I got out of the truck, grabbed a dolly. A toilet would have, have some weight to it. As I wheeled the dolly toward the store, a blue SUV cut me off and pulled into a parking spot in front of me. I stopped, and the woman behind the wheel gave me a wave. She buzzed the window down and said, Sorry. She was fifty-ish, attractive, with an upturned nose and short silver blonde hair. A small, similarly blonde dog hopped up on her lap and yapped at me furiously. Harry, shush, she told the dog and pushed him back. She turned back to me and smiled and said, Sorry, he's all bark. I thought of Lewis's dog, all bite. He's just excitable, I'm sure. I paused and reached toward the window. Harry paused from his barking to snip my fingers. He likes you, the woman said, easing him across her lap and back into the car. She was wearing a white sweater with holly on the front. Christmas. He smells pony, I said. She stroked the dog. Harry, the nice man, has a pony, she said. The woman lifted him into the back seat, and he sprang to the front. She gave him another push and backed out of the door, saying, I'll be right back. I pushed the dolly around the car and heard the door thunk shut, another door open. She was getting her bag out of the back seat as I passed. Black leggings, knee-high wine-red leather boots. The boots looked expensive. I heard her call out behind me, Aren't we the early birds? Wanting to talk. I considered waiting for her to catch up, but I was rolling along, on schedule. In and out, grab the toilet, have it hooked by ten. If I stopped to chat with everyone along the way, I'd be an hour behind. So I pretended not to hear her, pushed the dolly through the automatic doors. Inside, the employees were standing in front of the registers like carnival hawkers, smiling and making groggy eye contact with the shoppers who walked right past. I did too, down the plumbing aisle, crossed the toilets, lined up on the head-high shelf. The toilets... Uh, looked pretty much the same, so I asked a worker to point me to the Kohler Classic in white. 
She pointed to it, and I saw the tattoos on her forearms. Somebody or other R.I.P. If you write it on your arm, does that make it happen? I thanked her and walked over and looked up and established that the toilet looked perfectly usable. There were cartons of them below the display model, and I dragged the first one off the shelf and wrestled it onto the dolly. I pushed the dolly down the toilet aisle, crossed a paint and varnish, then took a left by the artificial Christmas trees. They were green, white, and pink, and an inflated Santa looked down on them proudly, like he'd grown them from seed. I rolled up to the first register, and a guy said, "'Find what you need?' I said, "'Yes.' and he leaned across the counter and pointed a gizmo at the toilet until the gizmo beeped. He was tapping at the register, and I was digging for my wallet. When someone screamed, we looked up. It was a woman's voice. Again. Then again. That's great. <laughs> Thank you. So the book um, really grips you right from the start, uh, and that gives you a little taste of that. Um, I thought maybe we would start by talking about Jack himself. He's a great sure. character and somebody who's uh, sort of been in your life for a long time now. This is, it's your 12th McMurrow book, is that right? That's right, it's the 12th. Yeah, so tell us about Jack and for readers who are unfamiliar with him, uh, you know, how would you describe him and, and how did he sort of come to be? My best friend. Uh, <laughs> uh, well, uh, Jack and I have been together since the early 90s. And so uh, we, we have little, little uh, stints where we're out of touch, but only briefly while I'm writing another book, and then we get back together. Uh, he came to pass, uh, or we met, when I was also a newspaper person. I was in newspapers. I was a columnist. And I had aspirations to work for the New York Times. I was working in Maine. And I loved Maine. I loved rural Maine. I loved central Maine. And so uh, I put down roots. Uh, we, had, we bought an old house that is required a lot of renovation and restoration. Then we had kids. And before I knew it, my aspiration to work for the New York Times had faded somewhat. But I still had enough in me to invent a, kind of an alter ego who had, did work for the New York Times. He was uh, Jack McMorrow, was a city reporter specializing in crime. And he would not be on the front page very often unless it was something uh, really horrific. And, but he was someone who was fascinated by human nature and human behavior. And uh, we shared uh, a lot of the same uh, viewpoints and perspectives, which is, which is uh, uh, very fortunate. Uh, <laughs> and so, um, so he came to Maine. In the first book, uh, he was exiled. He committed kind of, a, uh, I would say, a journalistic ethical faux pas, uh, made a big mistake, had a falling out with the Times because of it. Uh, and he went up to do a story on a mill town in central Maine uh, that was on hard times. And like me, he fell in love uh, with the kind of the texture and, and feel of the place. Uh, and he's been here ever since. Mm-hmm. That's a pretty great description of him. I didn't know he was your best friend, but I... <laughs> That's great. Um, so you kind of mentioned there that you had a background also as newspaper reporter. So talk a little bit about that work before we get to your novels and, um, you know, how that led you or, or maybe something else led you to Maine and to writing these books. Well, I originally came up to Maine to go to Colby College. I'm from Rhode Island. And I went to Colby. I left for a while. I lived in... Uh, New York, and spent some time out west. And then 
uh, came back to Maine, and there was just something about not just Maine or Portland, but something about rural Maine that just uh, kept me alive more than other places. And when I came back here, I felt very, very much at home, uh, not just with the landscape, although that was very important, also with the people. I just felt like I belonged here with the people who, who live in a place like this. So uh, I was an English major, so what, what does an English major do? And read and write, and I love to talk to people, and I'm very, very curious. And that's, that's really, uh, before the advent of journalism schools as much, that's really, really all I needed to go to work for a newspaper. Uh, very quick, I worked for the Daily Newspaper in Waterville, which was owned by the, the company that owned the dailies in Augusta and Portland. And very quickly, I became a columnist. They realized that I was not... I w- was probably operated best without any supervision. And so <laughs> uh, I just wrote three columns a week for probably 15 years. And my territory was pretty much anywhere I wanted to go. And so I really had, I had three deadlines and that was the structure of my job. And so I realized now after I left, I realized that was really, uh, it, it was a dream job. Sounds like a pretty great job. It was, it was a great gig. <laughs> and I loved it. And I, but every time uh, I went someplace in the back of my mind after, after a few years, I wrote a lot of crime. I a lot of, wrote, spent a lot of time in courts and jails and the old Thomaston prison. I knew detectives. I knew criminals pretty well. And I knew that there was a... They, there was a real blurred line between the two. And so uh, that l- really gave me all the fodder that you need to write these kinds of books. <laughs> and so I wrote the first one in the early 90s, and it came out in 1993. It did very well critically. You know, a big surprise to me. I didn't, I didn't write it with the notion that I was going to get rich and famous, but I did write it with the notion that I would finish it. And so, uh, and then one just led to another and kind of, it was off and running at that point. Did you continue writing for the newspaper after your first book came out or were you able to kind of make the jump into full-time novelist? I I didn't really, it's, the thing about newspapers was I felt like if I left newspaper, I was going to lose the kind of the lifeline to this kind of world that I wrote about. So I was really reluctant to leave it. I did go part-time for for a while, but I felt that without uh, just being out there on the street, I was going to write books that I wouldn't respect. And I know a lot of people who um, who don't have the same sort of firsthand experience with this sort of thing. And I can, as you, when you read these books, you can tell. And so, uh, and so, I didn't want to lose that. I did. I said, I think I, I left newspapers. In 2000, so I've been going uh, for seven years after the first book, and um, and now there's another kind of. Can I tell you a little bit more about that? Of course. It's <laughs> <laughs> an interesting thing about being in newspapers is everything has to be true, and even though they were columns, they weren't really opinion columns. They were just like they were like short short stories about life, and so I was so tied to reality that it took me some time to. Uh, trust my imagination fully. So uh, this book, I don't know anybody like the, really like the the characters in this book. They were they all came out of my head very readily. But it took me probably four books before I was able to cut that kind of, that lifeline to mm. to real life. And I felt you know, the early books you find the descriptions of places they're all absolutely real. I've had people come to Maine from the Southwest 
with my books after a while and just and drive around Maine with my books and and lo- and they're able to find everything which is a little scary. <laughs> so <laughs> Yeah, no, that's great. I mean, I think that it really comes through. Um and the characters are great and um some of them are very interesting in this book and we'll we'll talk about them, but you have another regular character uh, in addition to Jack. Um, which is his friend and neighbor, I guess, named Claire. Um, so he feels to me like sort of a counterpoint to Jack, but I don't know how you think of it. And I was wondering if you want to, you know, describe Claire and kind of the the role that he's serving in the books and in Jack's in Jack's life. Uh, Jack, Jack and Claire are very close. They are uh, the best of friends. They come from different worlds. Uh, Claire was a Marine veteran from the Vietnam era. And he was a force recon marine, which is kind of which is special forces marine, kind of the 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 ultimate marine of of that period. And so he's very tough. He has all kinds of experiences, but he's the, he's very 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 principled, and has strict moral and ethical uh, kind of boundaries in his life. And Jack is a little more impulsive and self-destructive. And so in the early books, I think people have read them all. Sometimes they, the first two or three people would write to me and they'd say, oh my God, I couldn't believe Jack did that. I was telling him, don't, don't, don't do that. Please don't. And he would anyway. He drank a lot more than he does in the later books. Um, he uh, hung around with some really dangerous people and or somewhat dangerous people. And so uh, Claire was his sounding board, his kind of mentor, father figure. And he's also, because Claire has, has the background in the military and weaponry and just general good sense, uh, when Jack gets into serious, serious trouble, Claire is there to uh, pull him out. Mm-hmm. And so uh, I think that, but I think most of all, he's kind of the wise sage uh, who Jack needs because uh, um, everyone needs someone can, they can depend on for sound uh, advice and counsel. And mm-hmm. That's what that's what, he, that's what uh, Claire provides. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it seems like um, kind of an ideal friendship in many ways. Like a different, they're of different generations um, and get along, but have kind of a different uh, view of the world or a different approach to life. Maybe it's a more accurate way to say it. Mm-hmm. Um, if you're just tuning in, this is Bookworm on WERU. My name is Brooke Minner. I'm the director of the Brooksville Free Public Library. My guest this month is Jerry Boyle. We're talking about his new book, Random Act, just out uh, about a week ago or so. Um, so Random Act, you read part, a portion of the beginning at the start of the show, and it begins uh, with just that, a random act of violence or a seemingly random act of violence. And, you know, Jack, as he is reporting the story, seems to be struggling with um, just how to deal with a world where such terrible and random things can happen. (laughs) Um, That seemed kind of timely to me as I read the book. And I wondered, you know, how you thought about that when you were writing when you were writing the story. Well, the random act of violence, I thought it was quite a, I thought it was a really good title, and everyone <laughs> immediately got it. I thought they would take another couple of seconds before they got it, but they, it seems to be <laughs> kind of obvious. Um, uh, I think I, I did struggle with it, and I think, but I think people struggle with it, and I think that's why we invent, uh, the, well, if you, if you read about a murder or something, the first thing that people want to know is, well, what was the motive? 
why did they do this? And once it's explained, I think it's it's less threatening. And so uh, the totally random thing, the thing that makes absolutely no sense and you cannot make sense of it and is uh, horrific is is truly frightening. And so in this case, there was a r- very random act of violence in southern Maine a few years ago. And it was it was so... Uh, it was so much like something that had dropped from the sky and the victim was completely innocent, selected at the last second for absolutely no reason other than having to be walking by, uh, that it always bothered me. And so it stuck with me. And well, the, the genesis of a lot of these books is that uh, I'll be reading something or I'll see something and I'll write it down and the good ones stay at the top of the list. And this one was probably on the list for three or four years. And... Uh, I wanted to put Jack in that position where he, two things that complicated is one is that he feels guilty that he, he thinks that if he had stopped and chatted with this uh, person in the parking lot, she would have been maybe 10 seconds, 20 seconds, 30 seconds uh, behind entering the store and, and maybe the guy would have picked somebody else, maybe the perpetrator would not have done it. So he feels somewhat responsible that he, he, he brushed her aside and then she ended up being uh, murdered in this awful way. Uh, and then, but then also, I wanted to explore the idea that we do not want to accept that there are random acts of violence. We would, we want things to be explained. It's why, it's why we we have devils and angels. You know, there's good <laughs> and evil. Uh, it's why we have uh, rules. It's why we we. I think it's a way of coping uh, with these sorts of things. And Jack doesn't believe in random acts. He thinks that there's something behind everything. And so in this case, he decides, I think partly to assuage his own guilt, that he's going to explore this crime. He's going to find out who the victim was, who the perpetrator was, everything about them. And he's going to write this piece uh, for the New York Times. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, th- I mean, I think you're really right. And I was also struck by the fact that Jack has a young um, daughter. So do I. And I think, you know, after it became apparent that idea of something so random, you know, everything is sort of heightened when you are thinking of it through the lens of um, being a parent. But, you know, I wondered if that kind of played in (laughs) for him, too. I mean, and you have kids, it sounds like, who are older, but still. Yes, I'm sure it does. Yeah. Um, So one of the things I love about your books, and um, particularly this book, because it was set in an area of Maine that I'm pretty familiar with, or at least I assume. Uh, But Maine, you know, plays a really important role in the stories themselves. It makes it really fun to read. Um, Some of the places, as you've mentioned, are real and called their real names and easy to identify, but then others are not and are fictional. Uh, And I wondered why you do that and uh, if it, you know, what role that kind of plays in the story. Well, most of the most of the places begin in a real way, but then when I'm adjusting them to the story or adjusting them to the the vision of or the landscape that I need, I'll make a lot. I'll make especially in these later books, I'll make a lot of changes. So uh, that's one reason. The other reason is, uh, you know, I don't want there to be confusion between fiction and reality. And in my very early books, I had people come up and say, "Well, I know who that pl- I know who that cop was." Oh. And they and they'd say, you know, I could tell right away. And and so in this case, 
Uh, I don't want people to, I did not talk to detectives for this. I did not talk to court officers. I talked to people for the research about uh, mental illness. And I talked to uh, people about comic books and the whole world of comic books <laughs> and the mythology behind comic books and that sort of thing. But I didn't do a lot of street uh, research. Uh, a lot of this takes place in a homeless shelter. I did not set foot in a single homeless shelter deliberately. And so uh, I, want, I want a kind of a core of the book to be totally fictional. And so you can drive from... Uh, Waterville to uh, Blue Hill, and you will go through Bucksport. But uh, if all of the action or a lot of the action is going to take in Bucksport, uh, and it would result in a lot of scrutiny about Bucksport, then I, I try to kind of blur it, blur it as much as I possibly can. I, I remember one time I did one where there something kind of big happened in the town of Brooks. And so, and I named it Brooks. And then I happened to go to Brooks to, for, to speak. And people were very interested in, but almost in a way like who it might have been. You know, was it, was it so-and-so down on the such-and-such road? You know, what was I thinking? And, uh, and sometimes you, you really need to remind people that you're just making this stuff up. <laughs> That is pretty funny. That would not have occurred to me, but I could see why. And, you know, small towns, there's plenty of characters. And if you, uh, you know, were thinking about it creatively, I could see that people might assume that. Well, I, I love it. I kind of love the the mixture of real places and when he's traveling and he's passing through towns, because it's easy to visualize because you've been there, driven that way. But I also appreciated in, in this case, the kind of bigger town where it happened, um, which had similarities to towns that I know, but uh, it made it kind of even more interesting to try to have to imagine it a little more uh, without just visualizing the place I'm familiar with. Um, what did you think? I'm going to interrupt you here. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so one of, one of the, the things about these towns and these and the little <laughs> communities that you use is that it gives you a chance to uh, represent the kind of the different elements of Maine. And so I had some people on MDI. Uh, it's, uh, there's a fellow, who, a, car, a character who's a contractor. He's building a very, very big house for very, very big money on the coast and on MDI. And then there are other people who live, I would say, 12 miles away in a completely different world. And I like to juxtapose those worlds in the fiction, and and so that's part of the fun of having the places be somewhat somewhat real. Yeah, no, I think that that um, that you nailed it. You know, and I've worked in different uh, communities in Maine, in Hancock County, but in very very different communities. And have seen that, you know, that you can go 10 or 12 miles down the road and it's a whole different world. There was also a point in the book where, and I, I don't remember exactly, but um, someone was referencing the, the larger city, uh, which has a fictional name in the book, uh, felt to me kind of like Bangor in this area, at least. And um, there was a comment about, you know, um, that that it was the big city to them, you know, which I think uh, is true, of course, but is it kind of unique to Maine because that's a pretty small, big city. <laughs> it is a very, in some places it wouldn't be a city at all. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. yeah, no, I, and I think um, uh, being, kind of taking on those different Maines and you kind of had it all, right? You know, the summer people, 
um, and the folks that work for them and who actually then become quite wealthy themselves as a result uh, to some real poverty in rural Hancock County. Uh, It's part of what makes Maine really kind of interesting. I also wanted to bring in the opioid a little bit. And this this is not a book about the drug culture, but I don't think you have to write a book about the drug culture to have characters who are uh, in that situation because it's everywhere. And I, I did when I was writing this, I said you cannot write this honestly without having that be a factor somewhere in here. Yeah, and actually, my next question was sort of related to that. I mean, you said that you you know you didn't do research in homeless shelters, didn't talk to detectives and things for this book, but um, the opioid opioid crisis in Maine is certainly a factor in the story. And I thought you talked about it in a pretty nuanced way, right? That the people who were struggling with addiction uh, were complicated people. So what kind of research did you do for that? Is that a topic that you've covered in other books? Or did it just feel like now is it's it's just so timely? Well, it's funny, I, I was I've stayed away from drugs for most of the <laughs> this series of books and the other books that I write, just because it seems so pat, you know, that everything the motive would be a drug shipment, or the motive would be a, a big drug dealer, you know, I didn't want to write some main version of Breaking Bad. And also, uh, I think when it becomes the main motivation in a crime, it's pretty, pretty clear cut, it's money. So, so what? That's boring. So uh, in this case, I think the situation has changed so much with drugs that it's not, you know, that uh, people, people who are addicted are us. And this is not someone else anymore, and it hasn't been for some time. But yeah. it's it's so prevalent that we have to admit that. So I didn't. I was familiar with it, you know, from some uh, experiences of my own, and also uh, people I know who have had situations like that, and uh, and and seeing the crimes that come out of it, the families that are go through such turmoil. Some people whose lives are changed uh, permanently, you know, and you know, couple of couple of felonies, and you know, your life has taken a different path. And so, I just think it's now part of the fabric of rural Maine, in a way that it really can't be avoided. And also, in the in the book, there was also a lot of there were some meth users, and that is a little different feel. Uh, so I wanted to also include that because it's pretty uh, epidemic in northern Maine. So, but I didn't want that. I didn't want it to be a, a drug book. I didn't want them to be, be stereotypical drug addicts, you know, because that's an easy way to shove it away from us. Uh, I wanted it to be people had who had lives and and at one time, and this has really uh, destroyed those in some way. And it was the same way with the, there's a big element of mental illness. And I don't want, this This is a really kind of a fun book to read, by the way. <laughs> it uh, really is. <laughs> it's uh, it's getting a little heavy, but actually it's a great, right. fun read. It is a fun read. Yeah. But, but with the mental illness, that's also everyone. And so, uh, and people who, are, who suffer from that, uh, will some will survive it, some will come back, some will resume their productive lives. And, and so I just think that we have to admit that all these things are around us all the time. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's it's funny because my next question really was, uh, this was such a fun book to read. <laughs> so you beat me to it. But it really was. I've been fortunate over the past few weeks when I've been uh, getting through the book that I've had like some beach time. And, you know, it was great. I mean, I, I love a good 
mystery uh, that are smart and well-written like this book. And uh, I'm just wondering, you know, when you first started writing books, was mystery just, you know, the natural genre and connected to the things you had learned, you know, through your reporting? Or is it that you too love mystery? You know, what was it about about the genre that uh, really drew you in? Well, it never drew me in early in my life. I, I was I studied literature, and I was supposed to go to graduate school in literature, and I deferred, uh, and that was forty years ago. <laughs> and so uh, I was I was all about serious literary fiction, and as and and then I was home for a summer for at one point, and my parents had uh, I remember they had Tony Hillerman books and Dick Francis books, and I. I picked one up, but kind of disdainfully, and thinking, and I actually remember uh, giving my dad a reading list because <laughs> I thought that you know some of the books he should be reading instead of this mystery mystery stuff, and and uh, you know he was a very kind person, so he didn't you know <laughs> hit me upside the head. Uh, so, but then when I remember reading the Tony Hillerman book, and I can even picture myself sitting in the chair. And it just, it was gripping, and it was, the description of landscape was really beautiful, and I couldn't stop reading it. And that hadn't happened to me in quite the same way with Virginia Woolf or <laughs> James Joyce. I could stop. I had to finish this book in one setting. And so that changed my view of it, and I think it coincided with having all of the experiences that... Uh, that are the ingredients of, of this genre. And I don't think that, you know, people will, there are different, so many different niches in mystery fiction. You know, I don't consider these really whodunits in the sense that I'm, I'm consciously laying out a bunch of clues or, or, uh, or hoping that people guess or don't guess. But, you know, I hope, I hope that it keeps their interest to the end. I, it's kind of a, an interesting blend of um, of uh, description of landscape and exploration of character with a crime as the at the thread as the core of it mm -hmm. and so uh, so I don't know why why it seems so natural but it always has right from the beginning uh-huh that's interesting I love that you gave your dad a reading last <laughs> Yes. <laughs> what, were remember, you like 18, 19? I was exactly that age. Yeah, that sounds about right. I remember Doris Lessing was on there. <laughs> <laughs> That's really great. Yeah, it's funny. I sometimes have patrons at the library <clears throat> who are serious readers, you know, and, and read a lot of contemporary and heavy-duty kinds of fiction um, who will sort of almost apologize, like, I just need something light. And, you know, it's like reading is an escape. It's a great escape. You know, and mystery to me is one of the, the best, the best ways. So I always assure them that they don't have to apologize. Thank you. And no one should. <laughs> um, so Maine, uh, you know, the landscape plays a big role in your stories. Maine also has lots of mystery writers. And as I was thinking about this, um, I've just recently remembered that, that my own introduction to Maine as a child I lived in the Southwest. I had never been to New England. Uh, was Murder She Wrote the TV show, and I loved it. And I, you know, and it's so. I've started rewatching it, and it's fantastic. But <laughs> Maine does have a lot of well-known and not well-known mystery writers, and I wonder if you think there's something about, you know, the landscape or the rural nature of Maine that lends itself to that. 
I mean, there are good ones all over, but... There are good ones all over. I think part of... Uh, I think Maine lends itself to writers. And I think people who are drawn to this place and the culture of it uh, because of the pace of it, because of the physical beauty of it, because also I think I think rural places and smaller places you have an opportunity to see how people act. But I but you know people I've been asked that a few times. But sometimes you know then I'd say well if I hadn't moved to Maine would I have written these books? If I had gone to New York would I be writing crime novels uh, set in Brooklyn? You know and I think probably. You know, I think if you're <laughs> if you're a writer, you really can't help it. It's a it's a compulsion, and I compare it to being a musician. You know, and so if you're if you're something inside you makes you want to create this stuff, I think you're going to do it. If you're on a desert island, you'll be you know scratching it into a coconut. You you want to tell these stories, and I think you're also fascinated by. Uh, the way people act and the way they behave and the way they react to things and the way they talk, uh, the way, you know, you, and that, I don't think that has anything to do with a particular place. I think this is a very comfortable place to live as a writer. And it's also, it's nice to be surrounded by other writers. I think there's respect for it. There's privacy. But, you you know, you, I think of, uh, you know, Tony Hillerman from your area. Uh, mm -hmm. And, uh, gosh... John D. McDonald is one of my heroes mm. in South Florida and, and set in the 60s. I mm. mean, uh, you could go on for the whole show. <laughs> um, but I do think that they have probably have the same, same inclination that the people here do. Uh, I'm finding that, you know, Portland's getting very crowded with mystery writers. I've just recently decided I'm not going to write another book set in Portland because I keep running into the mystery writers everywhere I go. And my, my book, I'd have to be, you know, have my characters talking to mystery writers in the old port. So uh, I'm moving on. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> Portland's getting very crowded with lots of things, <laughs> it is. right, mystery writers. Uh, if you're just tuning in, this is Bookworm on WERU. My name is Brooke Minner. I'm the director at the Brooksville Free Public Library. My guest this month is Jerry Boyle. We're talking about his new book, Random Act, and about writing and uh, and Maine and all kinds of other things. Um, so uh, you just kind of led to this, actually, but I'm always interested in... Um, kind of the process behind the scenes and you said there are lots of writers in Maine um, are you you know connected formally to other writers did you really rely on them when especially you were first getting started and you know that community how has that um, played a role in your work well, it did play a role. When I started, there was no community of crime novelists in Maine. There were a couple people on the coast who were, who were very well-known, and but they wrote a completely different uh, niche of the genre. You know, it, so I was kind of on my alone at that point. I did have uh, an acquaintance with Robert Parker, and so uh, in terms of a community of mystery writers, um, I wrote the first book, uh, I wrote Deadline, the first novel, uh, pretty much on my own in isolation. But I never felt, you know, I never had a reader's group or a writer's group or, or didn't show it to anyone. Uh, and, but I felt like because of my, my day job at the time was I was immersed in the world of the books. I felt like I really didn't need that. And also, I think with newspaper, uh, coming from newspapers, you write really fast 
and there isn't a lot of time for reflection. You know, it's you have a deadline that's uh, hours or minutes away, and once you finish that one, you're on to the next one. And I think I wrote the first one kind of in that style. Um, you know, newspaper people don't don't meet once a week and go over their stories and say, "What do you think of this lead?" There, there's there's the pace is too fast. But once I wrote the first one, I did talk to, and I was well into the second, and I did talk to uh, Bob Parker, as as he was known to people who knew him, um, and he gave me an entree to his literary agent, which he didn't have to do, and she was my agent for many years. Uh, and so in that way, he gave me a, a hand up, and which is crucial, and I, I try to do the same for people who ask if I if I can help them in any way. I think now there is a community of mystery writers, and there's a conference in Portland every year, and uh, everyone is there, and you get to say hi again. You, you're familiar with their books. Um, uh, we're all Facebook friends, and so <laughs> you know people will blurb you know other people's books. You know I've had I think three or four people from Maine. Uh, gave me blurbs either for this one or for another one I have coming out next month. And so uh, you do kind of stick together uh, in that sense. And But it's funny, we're all, we all write a little bit differently. And and uh, I don't think it's a competitive thing. I think we're, we think we're kind of us against the world kind of <laughs> attitude. <laughs> That's great. And so when you're working on a book, and it sounds like you've been very busy. Um, do you have a sort of, you know, you write from this time to this time every day? I'm always just sort of curious uh, mm-hmm. how people manage to ever get a book out the door. Well, I always, I remember uh, Robert Bob Parker said, someone asked him that, and he said, well, it's not very hard at all. You write five pages a day, and you can do the math. And, uh, <laughs> and so you find time in whatever part of the day allows you to do that. Uh, when my kids were home, and I would get up at four, and I'd write until I had to go do something else. And it taught me a couple of things. One, it, one is you can really get started if it becomes part of your natural rhythm. Uh, by 4.15, you're in it. Uh, the tea is there. Uh, off you go. Uh, also, that a lot of people in, Maine, in rural Maine are up at 4.15. You know, the milk truck goes by. And uh, I could almost tell what time it was by the sound of the exhaust of the people going by my house. And so... Um, so I think that is, there is always a way to do it. It's not insurmountable. If you added up all the things that you do in a year and put them in a room and piled them up in some way, uh, it would look, it would look absolutely overwhelming, but you don't look at it that way. And it's the same with books. So I would write, I would write from four to eight, four to nine. Uh, at that point late, lately I've shifted so that I'll try to write all day, one day a week. And I also write on weekends now. I'll write even for evenings. All after dinner, I go to write for three hours. I'm not, you know, I'm not the greatest. I'm not a ball of fire, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> but people have put up with it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I do think it can be done. I know a lot of people who have hesitated to begin. They I hear talk to a lot of people. They have this great book idea, and they want to tell me about the book idea. And often, sometimes the ideas really are great. And so I say, start it write the first chapter and don't care whether it's great or bad or whatever just start get it going and create something you know do you think you have yes this vision in your head of a piece of music or a painting it's torture to have it stuck in there and so i think that just type and start and it's uh, and i uh 
writers were not writers. There was a time when they weren't writers. They were just like everybody else. <laughs> so, right. so I think, uh, I don't know why we kind of uh, turned it into this, uh, this very scary process. And it's, not, it's really not scary at all. Yeah, I think that's really good advice. I've heard the same advice about uh, runners. So I'm a runner. It's like, mm-hmm. I wasn't a runner till I started running, and then I was a runner. <laughs> you don't have to be, you know, a marathon runner to call yourself one. Um, but I think you're right. And I hear that from people and through the sort of library world all the time. They want to write and don't know how and haven't started. So. <laughs> well, it's, it's not that hard. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So um, you said you studied literature when, when you were a child. I mean, did you always think you wanted to be a writer or you were more interested in being a sort of dedicated reader? I was more of a dedicated reader, and I will say to people that you can't write well unless you read well. And because I think it's like saying, I want to be a jazz musician, but I've never heard jazz. And so you you have to listen to it and listen to it and listen to it. Uh, I did not write a lot. I don't remember writing things or making up. I was not a, one of those kids who's always got a story going, and they perform it in front of the relatives. You know, I was a reader, though. And I read everything in sight, and my whole family was. Um, and I think, but for a while, I wanted to be um, a naturalist, kind of field biologist. I really, I'm a big, I, I love birds. And so, uh, so it wasn't really until, I didn't even really want to be a journalist. In the 70s, you really didn't have to want to be something. <laughs> you could just kind of take it day by day. Like, <laughs> so back then, I think I, it was all just whatever was going to come along. Uh, but I think, I, you know, I wrote fiction. I'm a little being, being facetious there. <laughs> I did take creative writing in college. I wrote a lot of fiction. I wrote a lot of poetry. And so, uh, I've, and in the back of my mind, I thought, well, what if, I, if I'm not writing these novels, what would I write? And in some ways, I think I don't want to write true crime. doesn't interest me in the least. Uh, but I, I think I would like to, you know, you could write poetry again. That would be interesting. It would be, uh, or write essays. And so I think uh, that part of kind of my writing DNA would, would maybe emerge. Mm. The funny part about this is you do, you write what you, eventually you write what you get paid for. <laughs> and so if you have a paying gig and it's, uh you know, it's playing jazz piano. You don't all of a sudden throw it aside and say, I want to play uh, the accordion. <laughs> I never have, but I will. So I think some of it is circumstances. Mm-hmm. Well, that makes sense. Practical <laughs> and true, you know. <laughs> Did you have um, teachers or, or even informally kind of mentors when you were first writing and doing like those creative writing classes? Were there people who said like, <clears throat> this is good, you can do that. <laughs> yeah, I think that people, I had professors in college who I really admired and emulated in some ways, you know. They were mostly poets. And mm-hmm. it's, um, and I think they gave me the the nod that I could be very good at this, you know, that I wasn't wasting my time. And, um, or as uh, Rick Russo said, used to say, um, I hadn't cost the world a good plumber. <laughs> <laughs> And, and so I think, so there was enough of that. But I think the thing that they taught me, and I still am friends with uh, one of them, we've, we've stayed friends all these years, is that writing is very important. And each word that you write is very important. And there's a tremendous power 
in the words that you write. And so I think that was the lesson that I came away with. And so I think that probably has colored uh, my crime fiction. You know, I'm very, I like to think I'm very careful about the words. And so, because I know that they're, they're important and there's a right word and a wrong word. When I'm reading either, you know, on air or in front of people, I edit, I find myself editing as I go. And I'll be changing things uh, on the fly. And so I'm a little leery when people are sitting there. You know, some people like to sit with the book in front of them because they'll say, wait a minute, that wasn't in here. (laughs) (laughs) That's funny. And so, because it's never quite finished. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I can think, sometimes I'll be going along and there's a a little, just the rhythm of a sentence is a little off. And I'll think, yeah. Or... um, or there's a word of dialogue that I think I, I can do that better now. So, so in some ways, what is it? Great art isn't finished. It's just abandoned. I'm saying that, not saying this is just great art, but also any work of art, I think, mm-hmm. is something you can keep working and working and working on. So it's fortunate there are deadlines. Yeah. Or you just write one book. Yeah. I was just told the exact same thing this week uh, by a filmmaker mm-hmm. who said, you know, the reason filmmakers always submit to festivals the last day of the deadline is because they're never done right, <laughs> with their film and just comes a point where you got to turn it in or whatever. So uh, I think people who are really dedicated to their craft, whatever that is, uh, if they're doing it well, they're looking at it constantly. Um, and, you know, it comes through for the reader because the words are careful. And uh, you might not think of it that way when you're reading, but that's essentially what makes a good book from a okay book. Yeah. <laughs> or that, you'll so notice if they're not the right word. I think. <laughs> yeah, I think that's right. That's a better way of saying it. Um, so we have just about a little less than 10 minutes left of the show. I have a couple questions I like to ask my guests because uh, they're interesting for me. So one of them is I'm always curious uh, what the writers that I get to interview are reading recently or lately. It doesn't have to be new. I'm just always interested in uh, good book recommendations, essentially. Uh, well, I'm uh, my reading list is very eclectic, and so I um, so I'll tell you what's right beside my bed right now. There's a book called The Tender Bar by J.R. Moringer, which you are familiar with, I believe. Mm-hmm. It's uh, the the most wonderful memoir of a guy growing up on Long Island in the fifties and sixties. And the effect of this is crazy family on him. And his home, really his home away from home, is this bar called Dickens. And so it's, it's a really, really starting, startlingly well-written kind of epic of growing up. And so uh, it was given to me by a friend who knew who knew the author, and you know I'm, I marvel because I'm reading about all these things that happened when he was eight, ten. I'm thinking, well, how, one, one thing, how does he remember all this? Uh, <laughs> is it all going to come back to me sometime? <laughs> I hope. Uh, so I'm writing that. It's very, very well written. There are moments, and you know, as a writer, sometimes you're reading something and you'll hit something. And you'll say, "Wow, <laughs> that paragraph." was perfect, and I'm hitting quite a few of those. Oh, that's the best. And so so I'm getting kind of a, a memoir kick, and I'm also reading another older memoir, which is Andre Agassi's autobiography, which is called Open. Mm. And that was not at all what I expected, and he's a really fragile character, even as he became quite successful. His childhood is 
scary. And so I'm a, you know, I was a tennis, pretty serious tennis player for many, many years. Mm -hmm. So I'm, I, but I think anyone could read it. It's very, very thoughtful and very self-reflective. Uh, so that's good. And then I was reading. I'm reading uh, another one that's totally eclectic. Uh, I went to my local library, which <laughs> uh, which is right Glad next to hear it. right next door to my house. And so and I got Churchill's The Coming Storm, and I wanted to see. What uh, what leaders were like <laughs> back then, and it was uh, it's it's amazing mm. the 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 kind of intellectual capacity that this one person had. Yeah. So <laughs> so I'm I'm reading that. Uh, I read a book by Doris Kearns Goodwin. I will start to get out when I'm when I'm getting revved up to start another uh, crime novel, which I, I'm probably a couple months away to start from starting a new book. I will read, uh, get out all my f old favorites, uh, some John, John D. McDonald, I'll read one of those. Um, I'll read a Tony Hillerman. <laughs> and, uh, and so there's, they're kind of my go-tos just to get me Give me the oh, that's feel interesting again. Uh huh. So, so do you often read um, thematically that? Like right now, you're reading memoir. Um, do you do that regularly? Because I I do that sometimes, and I I love to read like that. I think I probably do. I think <laughs> the good ones, if you had a, the good memoirs, are really are really uh, fascinating mm -hmm. explorations of how people work. I read a lot of history, but then I'll I'll read a lot of. Uh, Early American history, European history, and then I then after a while I, I pick up the next one and it's twelve hundred pages and I think <laughs> life's too short so then I'll jump into something else. Um, I'll read. I was just reading a Jack Reacher, you know. Uh, some of our I like Kate Flora's work. Uh, mm -hmm. Very much. I'll read one of those. Um, uh, Paul Dwyer has a new one. I'll read that. So. I'll go over to the mystery section, but then once I actually start, and when I'm actually starting, there's no more crime fiction reading until I'm finished. Uh, uh -huh. like, I'm too much of a mimic, and so, <laughs> um, so I have to just cut it right off. <laughs> That's great. And so um, you mentioned you have another book coming out soon. Uh, maybe tell us a little bit about that and, and what you're working on next. Well, I'm writing, uh, I write two series, and I have 12 in the McMorrow series, and I have the third book in uh, the Brandon Blake series, and it's called Port City Crossfire, and it's set in Portland, and in a community maybe about 20 miles south of Portland on the coast uh, that is a, a gentrifying mill town with a gentry sort of community on its coastal part. And so people probably hmm. figure that out where that is. <laughs> uh, but it's, a, it's uh, about a police shooting. Brandon Blake is a police officer in Portland, a young uh, patrolman. And he uh, shoots and kills someone in the first chapter. And it's really about the repercussions of that for him and for all the people who are surrounding it. It's another fun read. Uh, I, I hope I'm not <laughs> I'm sure. giving people the wrong, wrong impression. I'm here to tell you, they really are fun to read. And I uh, have said to many people as I've been preparing for this show that it's like a great summer, you know, it, ha it deals, of course, with heavy topics, as we've mentioned, but it doesn't feel that way. It's a fun read. Absolutely. 
<laughs> Thank you for that yeah, endorsement. Well, well, you're welcome. And, you know, I try to be honest about those things when I'm talking to the library patrons, especially, and anyone else in my life who will allow me to talk about books as long as I <laughs> like to. Sometimes my family's had enough. Yeah, um, yeah well, that sounds great. And uh, you'll have to come back sometime. We'll talk about other books and your other series. I would love to do that. I really appreciate you uh, making the trip up. And I hope that listeners will go out and find a copy of Jerry's new book, uh, just arriving in bookstores and libraries like this week, probably, right? Uh, or last. <laughs> or last, soon. Excellent. That sounds great. Um, sometimes I wrap up my show with a short audio essay by Todd Nelson. Todd is a writer and educator based in Castine. I'm always happy to uh, be able to share his work with my listeners. Thank you all so much for tuning in. My show in August will feature uh, MDI-based writer Earl Brecklin. He's got a new book out called Return to Moose River. I believe he just won a Main Writers and Publishers Award for that book, and I'm really looking forward to reading the book and talking to Earl. Join me on the second Thursday of each month at 10 o'clock for Bookworm, and thank you so much for supporting WERU. Or perhaps you have another favorite first line in mind. One evening, after thinking it over for some time, Harold decided to go for a walk in the moonlight. Or, this is all true, even if it never happened. And then there's the classic, for a long time I used to go to bed early. That one, however, is about falling asleep, not reading at bedtime. Most bedtime stories, ironically, are about trying to stay awake until the end of the book, the goal for both the reader and listener, remember? The point is, everyone has a favorite first line, a first story, and first recollection of being read to. Reading aloud, or having someone read aloud to you, is one of the great archetypal memories. It evokes the cadence of ancestral voices, family traditions and lore, and power struggles over reading just one more book before it's time to turn out the light. Need a last drink of water? We cling to reading aloud in sophisticated new ways, podcasts and books on tape. In the new dispensation of digital media, it is still the sound of the human voice reading to us languorously, linearly, that we purchase and download. We can't follow bedtime reading on Twitter, after all. You can't rush Harold on his walk, after all. I enjoyed an epic bedtime story chronicled in the New York Times. Once upon a time, Jim Bronzina's younger daughter, Kristen, hit fourth grade. He did not want their bedtime reading ritual to end, as it had with his older daughter, who took the reins away from him at fourth grade. He proposed going for the streak, 100 straight nights of reading. When the streak reached 100, they celebrated with a pancake breakfast, and Kristen whispered, I think we should try for a thousand nights. Their list of books is an Alexandrian library of great reads that took them way past 1,000 and closer to Cal Ripken's consecutive games played record, 2,632. The article recalled several generations of Nelson books which might approach the first threshold of the streak. 
I suppose it begins with the tattered and well-loved picture books that were my father's and which became the early readers for my generation. Judging by their patina of wear, they were storied books, the jungle book, alphabets, fairy tales. Clearly they had served a thousand nights before I came along, O oh, best beloved. In my era of being read, too, I recall one night in particular with affection. We were on summer vacation at a cottage in New Hampshire, and the rain from the mountains had blown down the Saco River Valley. We were housebound at twilight. We had heard the evening freight train going to Berlin, blowing its forlorn wheel approaching the Frankenstein cliffs, and the stars were coming out. My father was the reader, and the story was a Sherlock Holmes mystery. A good reader, having spent years in radio broadcasting, he brought character and resonance to his delivery of the characters of Watson and Holmes, their accents, and the winding syntax of Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. But tonight he was struggling to stay awake. He would begin a sentence with gusto and then lose his way in the commas, nodding off, his head snapping back to attention until finally it was no use. Dad! We just had to get to the end of the Red-Headed League. A mystery story is not something to start and not finish. We had to know how Holmes got his man. But soon we all succumbed to the warm fire and soft, moist summer air seeping through the screens. The denouement of the red-headed league would wait until morning, or the next evening. The streak was intact. And how many times have I begun Goodnight Moon, with every intention of getting to the last of the old lady's hushes, only to find myself going cross-eyed over the comb and the brush and the bowl full of mush? Dad, says Ariel. Eventually the book is committed to memory, and the listener begins to recite the words. But we all know that words must accompany the pictures, and that we must point out each painting detail as it arises in the text. There is a correspondence at work, seeing shapes, seeing letters, hearing words and rhymes, and the texture of language. This is the texture of the parent-child bond, and the true meaning of the streak beyond mere story installments. My most memorable books were Harry Potter, and the longest was The Golden Compass, says Ariel. And then you always fell asleep, or I did. And she remembers the preferred seat, the cozy chair and a half. Bedtime reading is a time, a place, a book, and a companion. Bedtime stories are our stories, snuck in just before the covers of sleep. Back to the Brosina streak. Like all earth-shattering acts, there was more to the streak than met the eye, although for years it was unspoken. About the time the streak started, Kristen's family shrunk from six to two in a year's time. Her two surviving grandparents died, her sister, who was seven years older, went off to Yale, and her mother left her father. 
It was just the two of us, Christian said. The streak was stability when everything else was unstable. It was something I knew would always be there. In the article, Christian refers to the streak as an essential communication as well as cherished ritual. She graduated from Rowan University in 2010. Her major? Elementary, my dear Watson. She was, what else, an English major with a 3.94 GPA. And she read happily ever after. The End <laughs>